to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. Today, we will take you on a journey. With me is Ankur Shah, who formerly worked at UNESCO's Silk Road online platform and is a National Geographic Young Explorer. Ankur participated in a 23,000-kilometer expedition that followed the footsteps of Marco Polo from Venice to Beijing, all along the ancient Silk Road. Ankur, it is great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Greg. Thank you very much for inviting me. But before we start, if you want to see a fascinating video showing Ankur's expedition along the Silk Road, visit our website. I highly recommend it. The link is available in the description of this podcast episode. Ankur, let us begin. Please tell us a bit about your background. How did you get interested in the Silk Road? I graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 2016 with a joint honors degree in Chinese and Russian studies. Uh, And during my undergraduate degree, I spent about 15 months living between Sichuan in China and St. Petersburg in Russia. My year culminated in me working on the Trans-Siberian Express. So the the train from, it's about 10,000 kilometers from Moscow to Vladivostok. So I, I guess I've always had a fascination with these, these, these kind of crazy and long journeys, and maybe that's what drove me to the Silk Road. Before the expedition, you worked at UNESCO on Silk Road online platform. What kind of project is it? Basically, UNESCO have a project called yeah, the Silk Road online platform. It's, it's an online hub, effectively, which, which gathers academic journalistic and other professional materials all relating to the Silk Road. The website they have, which is the main portal, is in four different languages, English, Russian, Mandarin and Arabic. The whole idea of the platform is to encourage its readers to engage in a kind of mutual dialogue. It's super interactive, they get like young people to send in their photos, uh, any articles, and also professionals who are writing on these subjects, because obviously the Silk Road covers such a vast terrain across the, the planet, but not everyone is actually working together to, to share the material, so that's where UNESCO tries to intervene. How is UNESCO related to the expedition that you took part in? We know that also National Geographic backed your project. What was it about? From March 2017 to about June 2017, we spent four months retracing the footsteps of Marco Polo. We had two main aims when we were approaching this Silk Road. Um, The first was to look at it from an ancient perspective. So I mentioned Marco Polo, but also there are many other explorers whose literature we had read, like Jiang Tian, who who came from the Chinese side, a Chinese diplomat. And we wanted to see 
having read so much about it historically, what, what it was like today and what it meant to us as young people. The second objective was the Belt and Road Initiative. Since its announcement, there's been very little grassroots information about what's going on on the ground day to day. Um, and we were really keen to try and tell some of the local stories that relate to these big headlines that we're reading. We visited 16 Belt and Road infrastructural sites. So these might be bridges, highways, railway stations across 16 countries between Italy and China. We were very lucky to get National Geographic as our main sponsor. So they have a Young Explorers grant every year where they basically help people who are trying to explore and seek alternative routes and tell alternative stories. They help these people tell their story. We applied to the grant, we were successful. I was also working at UNESCO whilst we were applying on the Silk Road online platform. We were, we were speaking with UNESCO about how we could use their platform to tell our story and tell the stories of the people we met on our journey. What examples of BRI projects have you witnessed during your travels? How does this situation look like uh, on the ground, in reality? And how do these projects impact the lives of local people? So one of the first projects we encountered was in Montenegro. So there's quite a famous highway that's being jointly built by the Chinese and Montenegrins. And if I'm pronouncing this correctly, it's the smokovac Matsieva section. And we, we spent almost two or three hours kind of treasure hunting in the mountains looking for this site. And we couldn't locate it. We were asking, we had the exact point, the exact coordinates. We asked the residents in that area if they'd heard of it, if they'd heard of even the Belt and Road Initiative. And this was a very clear case where high-level, top-down uh, kind of talk about construction did not match the reality we saw on the ground. Of course, this is two years ago, so I would be very curious to know what the development is right now. But I can say for sure in, in, in 2017, in about March, there was no construction, despite the reportage that there was. <laughs> Moving on about halfway into our trip, we were in Iran, and we were particularly interested in a railway station in Isfahan. And this is kind of, this railway station is, is an integral part of the Tehran Qom uh, railway project. So as always, we, we went to the train station and we were pretty ready to encounter some difficulty maybe, especially in Iran, the security level is quite high in railway stations. From the headlines we had read, the trains on this kind of high-speed track are supposed to run at 350 kilometers an hour. So we were expecting quite a modern train station, which we did not find. Uh, in this case, once we'd got into the station and you passed the initial kind of ticket counters, there was some kind of polished glass and it looked, there was some signs of modernity and that it had been refurbished recently. But as far as the actual track was concerned, we were absolutely sure. I mean, I'm not a railway expert. However, it was very clear that that, that train could not run at 350 kilometers an hour. Um, one example of a very successful, I could say, project, that would be the Baku Central Railway Station in Azerbaijan. So it's, a, it's an integral kind of cog in this Baku-Tbilisi-Kars railway project. So that's linking Azerbaijan with Turkey and Georgia. This was, it was phenomenal. Like I, I'm from the UK and I, I mean, I, this was better than any rail station that I'd seen in London for sure. Like it, it was layered with modernity. There was like napping pods, there was charging stations 
and the actual the trains looked like something from the future. So, it, I mean, just aesthetically, it was very impressive, but also I think economically speaking, apparently that the figures are such that like by 2034, this railway station could potentially contribute to um, doubling the overall national cargo transportation. So that would be shifting the Eurasian economic center towards that region. As for how it affects local people, I think it's a really complex question. To be frank, I'm not sure if local people would be aware of the benefit, certainly. I mean, and this reflected something that we encountered time and time again on our trip. We, we would try and ask people about like Belt and Road or Idailu or that's the Russian. I would go as far as to say over 90% of the people we met outside of China's borders, meaning across Eurasia, had not heard of it. The rare occasion where we might meet construction workers, for instance, who were actually building the sites, they still hadn't heard of Belt and Road. However, they had heard of, in, on, on some occasion, this kind of new Silk Road. The, the projects that were closest to completion, that we could really see tangible effects of how they were transforming lives and, and really working efficiently, tended to lay within China's own borders or just, just outside of them. So I'm talking specifically really about China's western provinces like Gansu and Xinjiang. The infrastructure we encountered there was phenomenal. Like we, we, we really drove like, two, like a third of the Earth's territory and I can guarantee that I hadn't encountered one single better highway than in Xinjiang. And, and if, if that can be replicated across border, and, and of course that is the intention here, I think the, the potential is really phenomenal. The issue, however, that I think I would like to raise is that some of these projects that we encountered could possibly be attributed to China's Go West initiative. So these are, these are infrastructural um, initiatives that predate the BRI, in some cases by over a decade. And I, I believe they're now being attributed within BRI. For me, it's distinguished. But, but certainly when China has the, the, the will, the political will to, to build these, these sorts of highways, I mean, the potential is there to be seen for sure. It's going to take a long time for, for just the knowledge of Belt and Road to trickle down, at least across Eurasia. And then to, to ask about whether, whether the people feel affected by it, I think it's far too early, to be honest. Was finding and investigating Belt and Road projects hard? Were the sites accessible? I'll be very honest, it was quite a challenging task. So I haven't mentioned our third sponsor. So that was CSIS, that's the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It's a Washington-based think tank. They have a fantastic project, which I should mention, called Reconnecting Asia. Basically, they have this interactive map and they're basically documenting every single infrastructural development that's cross-border across the world. So they'd given us GPS coordinates, very specific ones. They'd given us markers to look out for, and we were using their data to locate BRI projects. We had a list of at least 30 of these projects between Venice and Beijing. Now, the problem we encountered, the, the, the most basic challenge was sometimes the information that we had did not match with the reality on the ground. It's like a classic, it's a classic issue with researching, right? So we would, we would get to a point and we would be looking for a railway station, there would be nothing in sight. So the, the first thought is perhaps we've navigated poorly, perhaps our data is flawed, but there's another option, which is just that the BRI project was just not in place. So there had been a memorandum of understanding agreed, but the construction hadn't taken place yet. So that was the first challenge, was just locating the projects. Finding reliable information online about where these BRI projects is, is, is somewhat difficult. The second challenge was that once we actually 
found the site, if it did in fact exist and if it was at some stage of development. The second challenge was how we could go around and, and find some way to document about it. That's not to say that there was any hostility, but naturally sort of security guards or these law enforcement workers, it was in their vested interest to understand what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so there was always some level of friction. So for instance, in that Baku station I mentioned, we, we ended up buying railway tickets just to say that, you know, we were actually taking a train and that's why we're here. And you had to find different ways of navigating these obstacles, but it was possible. The issue of potential Sino-Russian competition in Central Asia is a reoccurring topic. Have you seen any proofs of such competition on the ground during your expedition, especially given the fact that you're able to communicate both with Chinese speakers and Russian speakers? Yeah, I get this. I get asked this a lot, and I'll be honest, it's particularly from Western observers about Sino-Russian competition. I, I would go as far as to say that I felt no sense of Sino-Russian competition on the ground at all. Um, I, I felt Russian influences, I felt Chinese influences, and I'll talk about those individually in a moment. But for me personally, there was no, no even remote sense of competition between the two, at least not in the way that people who we met, the, the workers primarily, they were not aware of it for sure. Um, the, the Chinese influence, I have one good example, uh, is we were in Kyrgyzstan. We were trying to make our way to Songkul, which is like the biggest lake in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and this was in early May. So we were kind of expecting the weather to be a bit better than it was, but the roads were completely snowed over in the mountains. And we were told had we arrived just a week later, these roads would have been cleared. And that we actually met Chinese workers who were working with these uh, like snowplows, effectively, to clear the mountain passes so that they could continue to work on them. So that was our first real encounter of Chinese workers overseas working on BRI. They were working together with local Kyrgyz workers as well, and I could interact with both nat naturally with Chinese and Russian. I I'm not clear if they could interact with one another very well, but at least they were working together and it was clear. As for the Russian influence, I mean, Culturally, historically, you, you feel it everywhere. I'm, I'm speaking with them in Russian, despite the fact they have their own mother tongue. And, and the food clearly had Russian influences and, and you could really feel it. But the idea of the competition, I, I, I didn't get any feeling of that at all. Many countries along the Silk Road, especially in Caucasus and Central Asia, are for the most part completely unknown to most of the world's population. What surprised you the most about Central Asia and Caucasus? What was completely different from what you would expect? So, so personally, for me, the, the Central Asian and Caucasian aspect of the trip was the most enjoyable because I was free-flowing in Russian. I could really meet people, actually feel like I was engaging with them, whereas in some of the Balkans, I didn't have that kind of fortune. I, I guess, like... And this is not something I should have been surprised by. I think that reflects me approaching this trip from a Western perspective and kind of exoticizing some of these locations. But I, I think you should never be surprised by the level of hospitality and kindness that we encountered. It's unparalleled. Like I'm, I'm Indian. My heritage is Indian, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with the hospitality concept. But this was like nothing else. I mean... In Georgia, in Azerbaijan, every day we would drive through and a new person would invite us into their home and, and ask us to stay the night. They would share their food, they would share their drink, their stories. I think there's a tendency 
to think of these people as far away from us because their culture is a bit further away. But the benefit of the way we traveled, because we were traveling overland, you, you really got this sense that the change was incremental. And actually, these cultures aren't that far away from our own. There is a tendency to exoticize. For instance, we, we met these two fishermen in Azerbaijan, um, honestly, in some remote location near Ganja. So that's just when you enter the border from Georgia. Their entire life, their livelihood seemed to be they were fishing in the lake. They were cooking that fish. They had a small hut near the beach, near the shoreline, rather. It wasn't a beach. And they would sell any surplus fish they had to, this, to the small towns nearby. Uh, so we really had this feeling that we were these like uh, explorers and had encountered this really exciting remote location that that was very removed from our own lives. And, and we ate excellent fish with them. Like I really wish I could find that food again. A few hours in and we were feeling so great that we discovered these people. This, this vibration sound comes out and I hear the Nokia ringtone. And this guy gets his phone out, this fisherman who's just been speaking to me in Russian and, and he's, he's talking and he's complaining and then he puts the phone down. And, and I was like, who was that? And he was like, it was my wife. She wants me to come home. And I was just thinking, this is just like anywhere else I've been to. Like it, yeah. it, the, the, the people are the same. I mean, the language is different. The culture has some differences, but inherently we're all very similar and not as far removed as I would like to think probably. I remember I was sat in Georgia after... I mean, it was the morning after, the night before, we were having a lot of Georgian wine in the countryside, and it was really an interesting evening. The next morning, we were having breakfast with a different Georgian family, and they, they put their television on, and they were showing me Indian Bollywood films. And they were telling me about Indian actors that I didn't know about. And it just makes you realize how interconnected the world is. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that have a similar dream of traversing the Silk Road. What piece of advice would you give to travelers who have found an inspiration from the Silk Road and the Belt and Road Initiative and want to make a similar journey? I think we could do a whole podcast on advice because we made 100 mistakes and so I have 100 lessons to, to share. From a kind of philosophical perspective, um, and I, I, I really feel this deeply now, like you should just be open when you travel. It's really important. As, especially this journey made me realize that because we were driving from west to east and we were gradually feeling more and more, at least me personally, feeling more and more open to these perspectives that previously seemed alien to me. And I, I think if you're open, the types of experiences you have on the road, I mean, it really sounds kind of cheesy possibly, but the, the types of experiences you have are dramatically different. I mean, you get to see people's cultures from the inside. I mean, we were in, here's another story, we were in... Iran and we'd spent one or two weeks and really struggling because none of us spoke Farsi. It was a little bit harder to connect. And I don't know how much you know about Iran, but there's people always talk about it as a tale of two countries. There's the inner world and the outer world. And only in our third week, after a lot of resistance from our side, feeling as though people weren't letting us in and they'd had no interest in us, our car broke down and the mechanic who fixed our car invited us to stay with his family. And once we were on the inside of the house, everything changed. So the, the women that would be required to wear a veil in the streets would take their veil off and they would make jokes with us. And we know we would drink tea together and laugh together. And that only came because I think we were more open. I think we weren't putting up a barrier and expecting people to interact with us the way we interact with them. And 
instead of imposing our vision of the world on them, we were allowing them just to communicate freely. So that would be a philosophical kind of perspective, maybe. Practically, as someone who is very unpractical, learn how to fix a tire would be a good start, like, tr or travel with a mechanic, because my, my skill set was languages. But I think on a practical level, it's really good to have certain skill sets, you know, we were camping, for instance, on a lot of our trip and, you know, you needed to find food yourself or you needed to be able to cook it, build a fire. All of that stuff is really useful and it allows you to access more remote regions rather than sticking purely to urban areas. And what about bureaucratic aspects of all that? You had to consider legal regulations of the 16 countries you passed through. So how did that work? So, I mean, we, we faced a number of obvious bureaucratic challenges from getting visas to specifically, there was particular documentation to bring a car into a country. So one for Iran is, it's called the Carnet de Passage. And without this document, you, you, you can't get into Iran with a car. In fact, it's the reason so few people choose to travel through Iran by car, because it's so difficult to attain. We encountered a similar problem with China. So we, we, we had initially intended to, uh, to drive right into China casually. We, we were very naive, I guess. Uh, and in the end, it wasn't possible because the fees were so high. We required things like a, a local driver, a tour guide, etc. So in the end, we, we took a decision not to bring the car into China. This is interesting, though, because what we decided to then do, as this was the final leg of our journey and we were so close to the finish line, we decided to ship our car from... Khorgos, which is just on the border with, uh, with China in, in Kazakhstan, back to Europe, which is real belt and road stuff. Like this is exactly what the whole initiative is about in a real sense. We ended up shipping the car to Frankfurt from, from Horgos. The car arrived by a combination of freight train and also sea, sea freight. It arrived to Frankfurt in two weeks. That's incredible, in two weeks. So from the point we shipped off the car and handed over the keys to this, this company in Horgos that facilitates this, the car arrived in two weeks to Frankfurt and it took us three weeks to get from Horgos to Beijing. Angkor, those were truly fascinating stories. Thank you for taking us on this journey and sharing your experiences and observations with us. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm really glad to, to share some of the stories. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.